Hello, and welcome to Eyes on Success, a weekly program covering a wide variety of topics of interest to people with vision loss. I'm Nancy Goodman Torpy. And I'm Pete Torpy. We cover, I tell people, from birth to earth, from womb to tomb. And that was Anil Lewis, Executive Director of Blindness Initiatives for the National Federation of the Blind. And this week, we will be focusing primarily on programs for youth, preceded by an overview of the NFB programs. And then next week, we'll be focusing primarily on programs for adults. But first, for our tip of the week. This week's tip is the NFB has lots of great programs and services, and one of those programs that we will not hear about from Anil is NFB Newsline, but we'll be talking with Scott White, who manages that program in a couple of weeks. And for those who don't know about the NFB Newsline service, it's basically a service that offers magazines, periodicals, newspapers, and a whole range of material to people with print impairments who are U.S. citizens. Support for Eyes on Success is provided by Sight, wearable electronic eyeglasses that support visual ability for people who are low vision or blind with visual acuity of 2600 or better. More information about the AceSight family is online at acesight.com. You are listening to Eyes on Success. Success, 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 success. Let's start by meeting Anil and learning about his involvement in the National Federation of the Blind. And if you want to hear a more personal introduction of Anil, he appeared a couple of months ago in episode 2038, where he discussed the intersection of race and blindness. My name is Anil Lewis. I'm the executive director of Blindness Initiatives for the National Federation of the Blind. And how long have you been in that role? I've been the executive director of Blindness Initiatives for the NFB since 2014. I've been on our national staff since 2010. And were you working for the NFB before that in Atlanta? Yes, I was volunteering. I had many jobs within the Federation as a volunteer. I served as a local chapter president in the Atlanta metropolitan area. I was the affiliate president for the entire Georgia affiliate for eight years. I also served on the national board of directors. Uh, So, yeah, I've been very active uh, with the Federation since really 1999. A real advocate and You've had the chance to advocate for yourself since you went blind suddenly in your 20s. Absolutely. I lost my sight in uh, 1989. I was 25 at the time. It's supposed to be a slow, progressive deterioration of my vision because I had retinitis pigmentosa, but I lost significant vision over the weekend and went to work on Monday and was not able to read my computer screen. So since then, yes, I've been having to do a lot of advocacy. (laughs) I understand that long before you went to work or even as a volunteer for the NFB, they were instrumental in your rehabilitation training. Absolutely. If it had not been for the NFB, I would have been, well, there are two two directions you can go with the blindness. One, you can fall into such a deep depression that you never really recover. And yeah, there was a little bit of depression with my vision loss, but I quickly, um, got immersed into a place where I was provided some services to kind of regain my life. Uh, But the false validation of society 
made me feel I was much better and much further down that path than I really was. I was getting that false praise and you're probably familiar with this of, oh, you're amazing, you know, simply because I'm getting up and getting dressed or you're so inspirational just because I'm doing the things that I'm expected to do as an adult in this world. And a lot of that kind of overinflates your ego and overinflates your perception of self. And by meeting the National Federation of the Blind, I got a reality check because then I really got a chance to meet some blind people that really were and are amazing and are truly inspirational. Uh, so they set higher expectations for me. And, and that, I think they really set a trajectory for me that allowed me to have a better future or allowed me to exist in the capacity that I am today. I think you just captured possibly the most important function of the NFB, which is to inspire and motivate other blind people to achieve whatever they can achieve, including happiness. Yeah, absolutely. And, and through full participation. So we, we as an organization, are truly to our core a civil rights organization, fighting for the rights of blind individuals. But we recognize that with those rights come equal responsibility. And I think that's really the key of what we do as an organization. So um, we don't not only go out and try to get access to the information that we need and the services that we need in order to live the lives that we want, but we recognize that by achieving that goal, we then in turn have to be full participating members of society in order to make sure that we add our value to the world. Eyes on Success is made possible in part by our corporate partners. Underwriting pairs the impact of targeted marketing with the integrity of community goodwill. Learn more by sending an email to hosts at eyesonsuccess.net. This week's focus topic is programs and services from the National Federation of the Blind, focusing primarily on programs and services for youth. So, Anil, give us an overview of what the NFB does and the organizations that it runs. And I appreciate the opportunity to really go through this list. And it'll be kind of an abbreviated list of all of the services and projects and programs. But before I start going down that list, I want to, to emphasize as we talk about these, a lot of entities out there, agencies and other organizations profess to do the similar or the same. Uh, but the thing through all of, all of the projects and programs, the thread that really kind of makes it all that much more powerful is we actively engage successful blind adults in the provision and execution of these projects and programs. It's, it's what we call the heart of the Federation. We believe it because we've lived it. And we have a desire to pay it forward. So a lot of what we do systematically may be provided by other organizations, or other entities, but they don't put the love into the projects and programs. And hopefully I can demonstrate that as we move forward. And, you know, growing up as a blind person, you're probably familiar with some of the barriers that uh, blind people face uh, coming through life. I didn't lose my sight until I was 25. But we start working to create opportunities for blind people to live the lives they want uh, at birth. Uh, so one of the things that we coordinate is a national organization of parents of blind children. Uh, and that's important because if we can work with the parents of these blind children to set high expectations for their blind kids to be competitive with their sighted peers, then most of the battle is already won. Uh, too many times blind kids through the parents not really knowing that their kids still have capacity to be successful uh, put them in an overly protective environment. Uh, you know, they don't encourage them to touch their environment. And, you know, that's stay in this corner, be safe. But if the blind child doesn't explore tactically their environment, then they're not going to get the information they need to actually understand their environment. Uh, 
And I don't know if that was your situation. Were your parents overly protective or did they challenge you? Well, you know, I give my parents a lot of credit for much of my success in life because they enabled me to overcome my own challenges. They were always there mm -hmm. as a safety net and they were advocates mm -hmm. when I was young, when I wasn't able to be my own advocate. But in general, they just let me fight my own battles, figure out how to overcome my own challenges and hurdles. And one of the most depressing experiences in my life was shortly before graduate school, when I lost almost all of my sight, I went to one of these rehab programs. And most of the people there were in their early 20s. And there were people there, they couldn't make a bologna sandwich. They had there no idea go. how to eat. It was because their parents, out of love, by the way, had already done it had already done it for them, right? Yeah. And they took care of everything. These people couldn't tell time. They had no idea of the hands on the clock. The key you just said right there was out of love. And, and it's not ill-intended at all. It's just misdirected because it's ill-informed. Yes. And if they really want to love their kids, then they have to set expectations for them to be able to be as independent as they possibly can. So the NFB starts by educating the parents then. That's a good first step. Absolutely. And then the first real incremental intervention that we have with the young person themselves is we really want to foster in those parents a commitment to making sure their kids become literate and are able to travel independently. So uh, some of the things that we do is we have a program called our Braille Reading Pals, where we send a print Braille book, has print on one side and Braille on the other, so that the sighted parent can read the print and read with their child. And of course, this is before, you know, they're pre-literate, but they can, use get, they can get used to print being in their environment. And as they start sounding out letters and words, it's already become more of a, a common kind of experience for the parents to share with the children. As a, an aside, as a blind parent, um, I taught my sighted son how to read. I was reading the Braille and he was reading the print and he was able to start reading it too. Of course, he wasn't reading A Tale of Two Cities. You know, <laughs> but he was able to sound out letters and words and stuff. So, But that's because that that particular tool was in his environment and it was a familiar thing in his environment. And we try to encourage parents of our blind kids to do the same. And we did very similar things. When our kids were young, I ordered many of those print Braille books from the National Braille Press, and I was mm -hmm. able to read the books to our sighted children and describe the pictures, and it was fun, and that engaged them in learning to read. Excellent. And we have to do that in a way that, that fights common technology, because people think that now audiobooks and that kind of thing take the place of it. And you really can't teach a child to be literate by listening. They can't learn how to spell the word superfluous by hearing it. You won't know <laughs> where the commas and the periods and the exclamation points are by listening. Um, so yeah, that, that's what we try to focus on, making sure that that Braille component, which is essential to their success, is integrated into their lives as early as possible. And we actually kept several dozen of these children's print Braille books so that now when we have grandchildren, these are nice. grandpa's special books. The kids, they just turned three and five. You know, they don't really get it that grandpa can't see, but they know these are grandpa's special books. Outstanding. This leads right into another thing I'd like to share. The National Federation of the Blind has a wonderful partnership with the American Action Fund for Blind Children and Adults. Uh, they're another nonprofit organization that's similarly committed to creating opportunities for blind people to live the lives they want. And through the collaboration with the Action Fund, we operate a program called Share Braille. And it's at sharebraille.org. So with Share Braille, you can take the Braille books um, and we print Braille also included, and you can register them on our Share Braille website. 
someone else can take a look and see what's offered, not only by you, but everyone else that's registered. They can select the books that they want. The person who owns the book will be notified. They can ship that book free matter to the family that wants it. And then the arrangement is also reciprocal. So once you're on that platform, you can also look at books that you may want and also get the person who has them to send them to you. So the Share Braille program really works really nicely. Nice. Yeah, so you really engage uh, parents and kids from a very young age to make sure they acquire the tools. And I know you're a big advocate of blind people having the tools to be able to do their jobs and lead their lives. And as you've mentioned before on this show, they don't always get those tools these days. No, no. And it's really a shame, too. So a partnership with our Action Fund also allows us to offer free slates and styluses, which we think are fundamental tools, just as fundamental as pencil and paper. Uh, it allows us to offer free white canes uh, to individuals who need them. And speaking of the free white canes, another program we have for those early uh, young kids is our Early Explorers program. And with that program, what happens is we want to encourage the parents to be their kid's first travel instructor. So we actually send a cane, you know, which is appropriate for their size. It's a long white cane to them, but it's more like a toothpick to me. But uh, <laughs> it gets that cane in their environment so that it doesn't become a foreign object. I don't know if it was your experience, but I've heard stories of how many blind people weren't actually given a white cane to use until they're actually graduating high school. Wow. So I actually never used the cane until just before graduate school, although I did have enough vision to navigate around, I really should have used a cane crossing streets and things like that just to identify other people that I'm blind. As we as we discussed earlier, you, you came along, I guess, at a right time when you say you went to the school for the blind. I noticed that a lot of individuals that were in the generation before me were talking about their experiences. And regardless of what your visual acuity, you at least got exposed to Braille and got exposed to cane travel. Uh, today, I think that a lot of the institutions out there um, around blindness really don't. Um, if a student has what they consider functional vision, they don't even, you know, really expose them to Braille. And we found as an organization that rather than saying one or the other, we really advocate that many students with functional vision, is what they call it, become dual media learners. So I know that when I lost my vision over the weekend, I still had what would be considered functional vision. But the fact that I took Braille let me when I first started working, I was able to read a CCTV, you know, very, very large print, but my case files were in traditional case file folders. So rather than having to get down in like a Lotus position to get to my file cabinet, to look with my <laughs> magnifying glass, to pull the appropriate file, I would braille my file labels so that I could just simply reach down to my file cabinet, pull the appropriate file and place it under the CCTV. So it, it allowed me to use multimodal means to access my information, which I think made me much more productive. Yeah, and that was, in some sense, kind of fortunate for me that I did go to the school for the blind, because although I had about 2,200, 2,400 vision, it wasn't that great. You know, your vision doesn't get better in life as you get older. And <laughs> I learned Braille, but I didn't use it really again until that time when I went to graduate school and I had that surgery that left me totally blind. And then all of a sudden mm. it was like, oh, I know Braille. I didn't have to learn it all over again. There you go. There so, you go. And it's key. And that's yes. what we try to get people to understand, because even in those instances where in grade school, the kids can read print or large print. We know that as you 
progress through your academics, the print gets smaller and more reading comes into play. So you right. get away from the Dick and Jane books and you are reading A Tale of Two Cities. And the print from that is much smaller than the Dr. Seuss books that you may have learned in the beginning. So, yeah, we try to advocate that the students learn Braille and that they also uh, become independent travelers as early as possible. So that's some of the programs that we offer. But as we move more in that K-12 environment, we also found that many of our blind students who are being mainstreamed uh, when it came to uh, areas of science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, uh, the school systems weren't challenging them to really be full participants in that learning. As a matter of fact, there's a tremendous story by one of our leaders that talks about how, yeah, he got to participate in biology in the dissection of a frog. Uh, somebody would dissect the frog, someone would pin and label the different organs, and somebody would take notes and say, guess which job he had. <laughs> so he, he didn't really get a chance to engage in the actual process of doing it. So President Riccobono, Mark Riccobono, who's our national president now, was the executive director of the institute at the time. And he and Dr. Maurer got to thinking, STEM is going to be a tremendous uh, career field for people. And we need to make sure that blind kids have the same opportunities as their sighted peers to benefit from that career. Absolutely. Uh, so we started putting together some really interesting science programs. The one that I found most phenomenal is um, our USLAM. We brought in 200 blind kids from across the country. We partnered with Johns Hopkins University, and we had programming that allowed these kids to dissect sharks and uh, build robots and program the robots and do nanoscience and build bridges and build and launch rockets. I mean, we had them doing all kinds of stuff. It was just so amazing. And a lot of the blind adult, you know, mentors, because again, we, we complement all of our programming with successful blind adults. Many of them were being exposed to these particular learning opportunities for the first time too. So it was really a tremendous um, undertaking. And we, we've done that in other instances too. We've had several other youth slams. We've done our Rocket On Academy. Uh, we're currently engaged in a grant from the National Science Foundation to actually teach blind kids to essentially be architects. Um, so we, we're doing a lot uh, related to creating opportunities that otherwise wouldn't exist if we weren't doing this. And that's so important to set those expectations and you know not dissuade these kids from pursuing their real interest. I mean, mm -hmm. this is part of the reason we do this show, when we interview blind professionals with all kinds of jobs. And, you know, I have a PhD in physics and I know it's quite possible to do physics as a blind person. Go. But if you don't see that, you know, often these social service agencies, you know, they'll look at somebody who's blind and say, well, you know, you can be a social worker or uh, you can work in this sheltered workshop. I mean, not to say anything negative about social workers, but, you know, there are other careers in life. Yeah. Yeah, because people do try to find those quote unquote blind jobs rather than creating opportunities for blind people yeah. to do any job. Yeah. Yeah. Boy, it really sounds like the NFB has created all sorts of fantastic programs that provide opportunities and a wide variety of opportunities for the kids. You just sparked three things I really want to make sure we, we cover in this. So, one is one of the beautiful things about how we operate in our program is we're giving these kids to really be exposed to STEM in a real way. And people may think this sounds weird, but some of the times when the students finish, they say, well, I don't want to go into STEM. And I think that's wonderful because what they're doing is making a conscious decision based on the true experience, as opposed to falling subject to what society tells them that they can't do it. Absolutely. Right. So it's a choice they're making from actually knowing that they're not interested, not somebody thinking that they can't do it. Right. 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 That's one. And what else? 
The other thing is we put our programs together to allow students to fail, which also probably sounds really weird. But a lot of the programs out there for blind students are so um, sterile that it will be almost impossible for the blind kid not to get the appropriate reaction during a chemical experiment. It will be almost impossible for that blind kid not to get the structure uh, produced correctly, you know, but that, that doesn't help them learn because that's not real world. Yes. So we had a project where we were teaching the kids, we put together hypothetical. What if you're stranded on a deserted Island and you don't have any uh, fresh water and you don't have any means of getting back to civilization? So we taught them how to purify water. We went down to um, Gunpowder Falls and got some nasty water from one of the rivers here. We taught them how to uh, purify it. I told them we should have, you know, had them drink it as proof of concept, but no, we didn't want to go down that path. (laughs) But part of the project was they also had to use these common materials, PVC, pipe, plastic, and of course, duct tape to actually build a raft, you know, to get themselves to safety. So it was two students in each team. We actually had them build these rafts and then we actually took them and, and their raft to gunpowder falls and they had to really get in their rafts and of say, let's say 10, two of them actually sank. And that would have been unheard of in other programs. Yes. Mm-hmm. But yeah. people think that's a failure. Well, yeah, it's a failure because the boat didn't sink, but I maintain, and I think these kids would also agree that those students whose boat sank learn more than the students whose boat did not. Well, I think you do learn a lot from failures and yeah. also if you've never failed, it means you've never stretched yourself far enough. Amen. At least these people tried to design a boat, and it's better than not having tried to design one. Mm-hmm. And one of the strongest skill sets we can teach our young people, really, that we can teach anyone, is problem solving. But if they never have any problems to solve, how are they going to learn that skill? And the third point you wanted to make was? The third thing is... What we're learning in all that we do, whether it be our STEM programs or our accessible museums, is when we create access to this for blind people, we create better access for everyone. So in our STEM work, uh, we're working teaching blind students how to do architecture. One of the tools that we developed was a three-dimensional uh, mental cutting test, which used to be just a two-dimensional drawing. But in making it three-dimensional and making it accessible to blind individuals, we created a multimodal tool that has proven to help even the sighted students understand the concepts better. You've been describing all of these fabulous programs for children from birth through high school. Mm-hmm. What programs do you have for older people? We work with transition age youth to get them ready to turn this education into actual employment. Uh, so we teach them those soft skills and those hard skills. Uh, we teach um, the students one we call them the five essential elements of success. And this is the students and the young adults. It's okay to be blind because once you establish a positive self-concept and a good identity, then you don't have to worry about the disability being a barrier to you, you know, succeeding. Two, we teach them to master the alternative skills of blindness. So every tool that you can learn to put in your toolbox, you should learn it. So if you really want to be competitive, you have to learn how to use the access technology that allows you to access the mainstream technology so that you can be competitive with your sighted peers. So the third skill we teach them is to cope with public attitudes. Uh, one of the key things of being integrated into society is making sure that you're normalized or at least people feel comfortable with you in that environment. In order for you to do that, you have to put up with a lot of kind of misguided ignorance, uh, but you have to learn how to cope with that in a way that doesn't ostracize you from full participation. So, the best people to teach people how to do that 
It's the people that have learned how to do it and do it successfully. The fourth element is very similar, but it's blending in. So one thing you want to do is as you strive toward coping with those public attitudes and being included, you don't want to be the blind guy. You know, oh, I love that blind guy. Uh, You want them to see you as a competitive peer in that space. So you really want to blend in for the value that you have, have to offer. And then the fifth element, which is totally selfish to the organization, if we do it right and we create this wonderful, mature adult, then hopefully they'll have the fifth element, and that's the desire to give back. And most of our programs that we operate, all of the volunteers I talk about, even the ones that came for our USLAM, they were mentees in previous programs, and they have been committed to the organization in a way that they want to pay it forward. So we do that in our programs through our career mentoring program, and we're going to be doing a lot more in employment. Uh, We work with access technology. We make sure that vendors out there who are creating technology for blind people actually create something that blind people can use. And we do that in the complement with also dealing with some of the research. So, I mean, again, that's only just a small kind of representative sample of the projects and programs that we have. And next week, we'll be hearing about more programs and services. You are listening to Eyes on Success. Success, 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 success. Now for this week's final item, how to learn more about the National Federation of the Blind and how to contact them or Anil Lewis directly. If someone wants to get more involved, how can they do that? So the easiest way, if they're computer savvy, they can go to nfb.org and there's a list of all of our affiliates and their, their contact numbers. Uh, But you can also call at the national office, 410-659-9314. And uh, our information and referral staff will be happy to track down the information for your local affiliate and local chapter. Now, you talked about programs for people of all different ages, everything from parents of newborn blind children up Mm -hmm. to seniors who are themselves losing their vision is it easy to find those programs on the website? Yes, we have a whole list of all of our committees and divisions. So we have a Diabetes Action Network division of blind diabetics. We have blind lawyers, uh, blind science engineering, uh, public employees, just blind entrepreneurs. So yes, all of that information is also on our website. And for those who are not web savvy, uh, calling the number at the national office, again, one of our information referral specialists will be happy to, to provide you with any information that will be helpful. So you have lots of ways to connect either virtually or through some of these news groups, depending on your interest, Mm -hmm. socially, in person, and people ought to just be aware of what options are available and check out your website. Yes. And for people who prefer doing things that way, do you have a social media presence? Oh, absolutely. So I know we have our Facebook account, if you look for National Federation of the Blind, uh, on Twitter, Our Twitter handle is at NFB underscore voice. Um, I don't think we have anything on Instagram. Uh, Of course, there's emails and and podcasts and listservs, and all of that information is also available on the website. Would you like to share your personal contact information if somebody has a question for you? Sure, absolutely. Um, I can be reached at the same number, 410-659-9314. Uh, my extension directly is 2374. Uh, my email address is a Lewis, that's A L E W I S, at nfb.org. And for those who are social media savvy, my Twitter handle is at Anil Life. 
at A-N-I-L-L-I-F-E. If you missed any of that contact information, as usual, it will appear in the show notes associated with this episode at www.eyesonsuccess.net. That's it for show number 2048. Next week on Eyes on Success, we will continue the conversation with Anil Lewis, Executive Director of Blindness Initiatives for the NFB, about more of their programs, these ones aimed more generally at adults. And we hope you'll join us next week when we talk a little bit more with Anil. You've been listening to Eyes on Success, hosted and produced by Nancy Goodman-Torpy and Peter Torpy, and distributed by WXXI Reach Out Radio. You can access the full archive of previous shows, subscribe to the podcast, and much more by going to our website, www.eyesonsuccess.net. If you have questions about anything you've heard on the show or have suggestions for future shows, send an email to hosts at eyesonsuccess.net. Thank you for listening and have a nice day.